This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. For this week's episode, I'd like to play a conversation between me and Arya Shapiro that had been taken out of our last episode, of our 100th episode, uh, just due to the time constraints of the show. Uh, and it's a conversation that I think is relatively important, so I'd like to give listeners a chance to hear it. But before we do, I'd really like to play some clips from a podcast I heard from Red Menace. I don't know if listeners are familiar with the Red Menace podcast. It's part of the Rev Left podcast family. I definitely do think there are a lot of important things we can learn by listening to a lot of the content over there. It happens to just be very high quality and, and teach us a lot about the world and politics and history and economics. One thing that might be worth saying in case it's not already obvious is that I don't think we have much to learn from them in regards to Israel or Jewish identity specifically. I think the political left has had a fairly consistent problem when it comes to the Jewish question, when it comes to the Jewish people, Jewish identity, the state of Israel to a large extent, although I think their criticisms are worth listening to and internalizing in some cases. And um, this might be largely because the Jewish people, to a certain extent, defy a materialist understanding of the world. In fact, I'd argue that the greatest weakness of the Marxist left is, I guess what I might call a dogmatic materialist approach that is unable to really engage with any ideas or phenomena that don't fit into a materialist understanding of history and reality. And the Jewish people, to a certain extent, defy nature. We're the only example of an ancient people that was destroyed, yet somehow managed to keep our identity intact in gas form for roughly 2,000 years until coming back to our land and taking possession of it, largely through the tools of colonialism. Uh, that makes us very unique in history. Uh, almost all of the ancient peoples that were destroyed uh, are destroyed, are no longer here. We learn about them in history books, and that's about it. But somehow, uh, through a process that just cannot be understood through a strictly materialist lens, the people of Israel have dramatically come back to life in the modern age. And I think that's something very difficult for a lot of Marxists to understand. And I think it's a lot easier to just deny our understanding of our own history and peoplehood and claim that Zionists were simply a bunch of Russians and Lithuanians and Poles who happened to share a religion and constructed an artificial national identity out of that religion and transformed that into a colonial myth in order to validate and justify the Zionist colonial project. I think that makes a lot of sense if one is not able to wrap their head around the reality of Jewish history and Jewish identity. In any case, there was this podcast that appeared on Red Menace and Rev Left that was critiquing the United States Supreme Court, but a lot of the criticisms could very easily be copy-pasted onto Israel's Supreme Court, and I think, in fact, really do express what a lot of 
the proponents of the judicial reform legislation here are trying to say. So I decided to take a couple clips from this Red Menace episode, play them here, and let listeners think for themselves if this is a legitimate criticism of Israel's judicial system. So here goes. None of this is rooted in actual legal like right. objectivity. And that's one of the things that gives the court this sense of like a, being a real th- um, institution <laughs> of checks and balances and nonpartisan. You know, this is just like really, really intelligent legal scholars applying the law, you know, dispassionately and acting as a check on the other branches of government. But what has been revealed, but it's always been true, is that this is an mm. ideological institution. And more than that, it is an institution where the reactionary elite in this country, whose ideas have no hold with the vast majority of the population, particularly the younger people coming up, this is one of the last bastions that it can retreat into where it is not in any way shaped or accountable to the democratic process. And there's no way to dislodge them from power. There's no way that anybody could have a vote on whether or not we agree with these policies. Um, and, and that's the kind of situation that we're in. And it's, it's incredibly bleak. Um, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it's also a reflection of heightening contradictions in society. There's a sense I right. get that this can't go on. You know, they're, they're trying and, and they're doing everything they can. But there really feels like how long can this bullshit possibly continue? Um, and it, I mean, they could surprise us and it could last many more decades, but I just feel like people are really, really getting fed up. Yeah, I mean, a couple thoughts there. One is that I think, like, you're getting at this idea, this sort of, like, mystification of the court as this objective stands above politics, just there to kind of regulate and make sure everyone's playing fair in the field of politics ideology that is so central to kind of the mystique of the Supreme Court. And one thing I think is clear is that the court knows that that's falling apart as, like, an ideological construct in American politics. Roberts, in his opinions, goes on and on about how disturbed he is by people questioning the apoliticalness of the court. So there even is, coming from the justices themselves, this kind of recognition that, yeah, the populace isn't buying this idea anymore, right? No one actually believes that the court is apolitical, that the court exists outside of these partisan skirmishes that characterize American politics. It's obvious bullshit. Theoretically, we can understand this. The law isn't something that exists outside of class society. The law, in fact, is kind of the codification of class rule, right? It's the right writing down of the rules of the class domination of the bourgeoisie such that it can be consistently enforced through the courts and through the policing system on a population. And so obviously, yeah, the courts are not apolitical. They are not outside of class struggle. They are, in fact, are the highest level of enforcing class struggle to make sure that the right side wins over and over again. Why was there no court case challenging the PPE loan forgiveness when there was a court case challenging student loan forgiveness? These kind of things make it very clear that the law isn't about playing fair, it's about making sure that the bourgeoisie always wins. Now, when it comes to Israel's Supreme Court and the battles flaring up again over our government's judicial reform legislation, you know, it's important to point out that both sides of this debate genuinely see themselves as punching up for the sake of democracy against some form of authoritarian regime. 
from the perspective of the protesters, this government, the Netanyahu government, is that authoritarian regime trying to centralize power in its own hands by limiting the ability of the Supreme Court to check the government's power. And from the perspective of most of the people who voted for the parties currently in the coalition advancing this judicial reform legislation, the Supreme Court is that authoritarian regime that constantly overrides the Knesset in order to advance and impose on Israeli society its own ideology, uh, the ideology of Western liberalism, and to serve the interests of Israel's westernized ruling elite. Now, while this is certainly interesting that you have two sides of a conflict, both fighting for what they understand to be democracy, perceiving themselves as punching up against an authoritarian regime, it's important that we recognize a couple of distinctions here. Number one, both sides are for the most part defining democracy differently. From the perspective of the anti-government protesters, opposing judicial reform, democracy essentially means westernization. It means being like the United States and Europe. That's essentially the definition of democracy, to be a quote-unquote normal country or Western country, that Israel should be an outpost of Western civilization in the Semitic region. In fact, former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who is very much at the center of orchestrating these protests, is infamous for referring to Israel in the past as a villa in the jungle, implying that Israel is an island of enlightened Western civilization in an otherwise savage and backwards region. Now, from the perspective of those supporting the government and the judicial reform legislation, I'd say that democracy is understood to be majority rule, that the policies of the state and how the state is run should reflect the will of the majority of voters. Now, from my perspective, what democracy really means is a system that empowers people to be able to influence the structures they live under. And I think with this definition of democracy, we could actually please both sides to a certain extent. Uh, because ultimately, and again, this is an idea that needs to be thought through, uh, perhaps we can think about federalizing the state of Israel in such a way that those who are looking to live in a more atomized, individualistic Western society, perhaps on a local level, Tel Aviv and perhaps even Gush Dan could be that. While those Israelis living in the rest of the country, whether it be the West Bank, whether it be the South, the North, could be living according to more Jewish or Semitic values. Maybe this is an opportunity not to draft a constitution because I'm honestly not sure Israeli society is ready for that. In fact, I'm pretty confident we're not. But maybe this is an opportunity to play with the idea of a more federalist model where different tribes of Israel get to live according to their own values on a very local level while sharing a layer of identity and certain structures and institutions that fit all of our needs. That's something to consider, uh, and maybe um, some of our elected officials will come to that conclusion as well. 
again, such a model could potentially allay the fears of what we often refer to as first Israel, meaning the, the westernized Israeli bourgeoisie, the ruling elites, who essentially built the institutions of this country, the army, the economy, etc., and have for the most part been controlling those institutions uh, since even before the founding of the state. Because those elites, what we call First Israel, uh, who are essentially leading these protests, they are concerned, they're legitimately concerned that Second Israel, which is basically a combination of all of the Jewish groups in this country who have felt marginalized by First Israel. We're talking about Mizrahim, we're talking about revisionist Zionists, we're talking about Haredim, we're talking about uh, Mitnachlim, West Bank Jews, uh, the national religious, uh, perhaps even Jews from Ethiopia and the former Soviet Union. Like all of these groups who have essentially experienced themselves as marginalized by First Israel and comprise Second Israel are rapidly gaining in electoral power as a result of the demographic shifts in Israeli society. So perhaps a federalized model is a way to allay the fears of first Israel and create a system where we can both move forward together, while to a certain extent doing our own thing in our local communities. Maybe something to consider, but we certainly want the state to be democratic, and this might be a way of ensuring that it continue to be, or that it actually become more democratic than it currently is. Now, another distinction we need to keep in mind is that even though I think it's clear that both sides of this struggle genuinely see themselves as punching up, one side enjoys electoral power, and Israel's socio-cultural trajectory uh, seems to be on their side meaning that as time goes on, they'll likely have more and more electoral power. While the other side clearly enjoys the support of the media, the security establishment, whether we're talking about the top brass of the Israeli army, the Shabak, the Mossad, etc., etc., um, the Supreme Court itself, which is obvious, the tycoonim, like the wealthiest sliver of Israeli society, the high-tech sector, essentially Israel's entire ruling class and our major dominant institutions. They all essentially pledged allegiance to the Supreme Court and to these anti-judicial reform protests. And on top of that, they even enjoyed the support of the U.S. empire. It's actually very interesting because if we look at any other country in the world, where this has happened, where the Americans have orchestrated mass demonstrations against a democratically elected government, in none of these other cases that I'm aware of is the American-backed opposition referred to locally as the left. Whereas here in Israel, those demonstrating against the government and against the judicial reforms that are totally uh, embedded in the ruling class and in all of the dominant forces of Israeli society, and even enjoy the backing of the United States, uh, that's what's called the left here. Um, calling someone a leftist in Israeli society is essentially saying they are part of first Israel, that dominant group that controls the economy, that controls the security forces, that controls the Supreme Court, that controls the media, and is deeply invested in Israel remaining a vassal of the United States. 
So that's just one of the local political ironies that outsiders should be aware of when you read in the news or see on television about the Israeli left or the Israeli right. In most cases, the Israeli left refers to first Israel and the Israeli right refers to second Israel. Uh, these terms have very little to do with what left and right mean anywhere else in the world. In any case, the battle over judicial reforms, which is in reality a much deeper battle over the identity of the state, have returned to the foreground of the Israeli news cycle and it's become evident that Ehud Barak and many of his close associates have played a central role in orchestrating these demonstrations and trying to destabilize our country in order to remove Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from office and to protect the power of the Supreme Court here. And I hope listeners can appreciate how the clips I played earlier of the Red Menace podcast where Brett and Allison are criticizing the U.S. Supreme Court. I hope listeners can appreciate how those criticisms apply at least as much, uh, really word for word, to the Israeli Supreme Court and how important it really is that we achieve some kind of judicial reform to empower the people of Israel and not just institutions that protect ruling class interests here. In any case, I hope listeners enjoyed our 100th episode. I hope that you're enjoying this episode and will continue to enjoy it as I play the deleted clip of my conversation with Arya Shapiro. And once again, if you like this show, if you experience yourself benefiting from it in any way, please consider supporting the show with a contribution you could make by going to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and clicking donate on the menu bar up top. All contributions are of course tax deductible. As listeners know, this show is 100% listener funded. We don't want that to change, so we really do need your support. And we also fully understand that times are tough. Not everyone's in a position to contribute financially, but if you'd like to support the show, and don't have the ability to contribute financially right now, please give us a like, give us a positive review, and share our show with your friends. That can really go a long way. And if you're interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, you can do so by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 101. Another thing that's hard to deny, that's like obvious from when you look at the Jewish internet and social media pages etc is that a lot of our ideas have been brought into the pro-israel mainstream in ways that are not necessarily how we intended absolutely i think uh, it's not a new trend it's a it's a trend that we've seen across the course of zionist history is the the big uh, visionaries the big idea setters present an idea that's radical in their time herzl was considered a crazy person when he first presented the Zionist idea and within a couple decades uh, it had really caught steam and uh, even some of his fiercest uh, enemies and opponents early on uh, adopted a lot of his his ideas. I think one of the interesting things about us though is that uh, they're not just adapting what we we've been talking about they're uh, toning it down a little bit. They're uh, making it a lot more surface level, a lot shallower. And I think these ideas 
are when we discuss them, and I think they can be on an even broader level. Yeah, I mean, part of that might just be the fact that there are a lot of social media influencers, organizers, activists out there who just don't have the knowledge behind it, who have never really gone through our programs, who have never really done the work of intellectually engaging a lot of these ideas, whether it's uh, the concept of Jewish indigeneity, that's something that we kind of uh, brought into the space, but was hijacked by people looking for a pro-Israel talking point, like another proof why we're right and the Palestinians are wrong, which is obviously not how we intended it. Like the notion of Jewish indigeneity is primarily about Jewish identity. It's primarily about internalizing that identity and seeking to indigenize um, the concept of Jewish decolonization. I think it's honestly that anyone, including us, like including us on this podcast, would call ourselves decolonized Jews is kind of ridiculous. I think it would make a lot more sense for us to call ourselves colonized Jews, because then we could at least acknowledge our situation and spend the rest of our lives working to decolonize on a personal level and on a national level. Right. I mean, decolonization is a process. And I think um, we talk a lot about how uh, decolonization is a, a way to really practice and really manifest what our sages talked about as national tshuva for thousands of years, returning to our authentic national selves, not just by rewinding and dressing and talking like Judeans did 2000 years ago, but really trying to figure out what from the exile we needed to experience and needed to adapt into ourselves in order to advance history forward. and what's uh, junk? What's the the refuse that we need to discard. clear out, discard, that we yeah. adopted with those sparks of good, those sparks of emet, of truth? Right, and the idea that we decolonized in 1948 is, uh, look, we, we definitely gained political independence for the first time in 2000 years, but to say we decolonized our land when the Zionists did, in fact, maintain the British colonial system, practically speaking, like meaning from a structural perspective, we're still talking about a colonial system, a colonial style regime. This one just happened to have a Jewish flag and be run by the Jews whose ancestors were displaced from the land 2000 years earlier. But it was still a colonial system and there were still natives of the country, maybe not the Jews, but other natives of the country who were still being victimized by that colonial system. So we could say we liberated our land from the British in 1948, although I would argue it wasn't the Zionists who did that, it was rather the Sternists who did that, the Lehi, who were successful at also dragging the Etzel and others behind them. But the Zionists definitely had created the infrastructure for a state, declared independence, built the economy, built the army, etc. Meaning they established Jewish independence in the land for the first time in thousands of years, but to say that was an act of decolonization is really a misuse of the term and, in my opinion, just reveals that the person using the term doesn't understand what they're saying. Right. Anyone who's read a little bit of Fanon or any even more recent post-colonial theory knows that the anti-colonial struggle is just the first step in a much bigger, much larger national process of, of figuring out why we got free, who we're meant to be once we have the autonomy to to ask those questions and to, to do that work of figuring out where our state is headed now that we're not physically occupied by a foreign force. 
Right. And there are also a lot of people out there um, who definitely agree with us, not because they heard it from us, but they, like us, are seeking to advance Jewish history to the next stage. Uh, they might not have our tools. They might not have our language. Um, they might not have studied these things as they pertain to other nations. Uh, but they definitely are seeking to advance Jewish history beyond where we would say Zionism was able to get to or is capable of, of reaching. But I see a lot of errors resulting from them not having these tools. Like I'd say that the average Jew living in the West Bank who is ideologically committed, totally invested in advancing Jewish history beyond where Zionism was able to reach, um, if you ask them, well, okay, like what are the next goals of Jewish history? I think the best any of them could do is save the Temple Mount. Um, and, and I think there are three errors that are worth pointing out that exist in these spaces. I think one of them is making the Temple Mount the terrain of struggle for this generation. I think that's a mistake. I think it's a conceptual error. I, I just don't think that's where we're at in history. If one wants to get to the Temple Mount, there are a lot of other things that need to be done first. And also, I, I don't think the Temple Mount is something that we're going to approach as a um, as a place where we want to lehit palel, where we want to do tefillah, where we want to have a synagogue. I think the Temple Mount is, is going to be something way beyond the concept of synagogue. And I don't think the Temple Mount, when we're ready for it, will be approached in such a way that uh, feeds into the like Jewish versus Palestinian or Torah versus Islam like, I don't think it will be a confrontation on that level. I, I think that, um, you know, there, it's funny. Uh, I had a teacher in high school, um, a physiology teacher. He was a very interesting guy. He was uh, from Yugoslavia. He was a, uh, an Olympic gold medalist, uh, probably about seven feet tall, built like a truck. Not a big fan of the Jewish people, but a great man nonetheless. Um, but I remember him once saying in class, and do what you want with this, but he said that, uh, this is 11th grade, physiology class, he said, men like to have sex to make things good. Women like to have sex when things are already good. Um, and I think that's relevant to how we look at the temple. You know, I think there are those of us who have, I guess, like the male approach, which is we need to build the temple to make everything else right. And then there's the female approach, which is the temple will come when everything else is made right. Like when we succeed at getting everything else right, then we can talk about the temple. And I and I think the female approach is the correct approach in this situation. Maybe that's even a part of the idea behind what our sages said that the the shechina, the mm -hmm. female side of the divine presence, mm -hmm. has never left the Western Wall. That uh, there's there's something in approaching that space that needs to soften us, that needs to make us more receptive, and not just actively militant to, to advance our struggle. That makes sense. Another error I see, and this is a big one, is cooperation with Christian Zionists. I think that's a huge error. I think there are a lot of well-meaning Jews in Judea and Samaria and the West Bank and elsewhere who genuinely say, hey, we have no friends, nobody's supporting us, the whole world's against us, even the diaspora Jews who are pro-Israel, who are involved in, you know, pro-Israel organizations are not supporting us politically, are not supporting us financially, um, and here come these smiley, 
white people with lots of money and political support, at least within Republican spaces in the United States, who, who are for us and who, who say they want to learn from us and who are willing to throw money at us. And I think that's a huge trap. And I think that uh, we can see that um, a lot of these Christian Zionists are really connected to very sinister agendas uh, elsewhere in the country, even if they're not trying to turn Jews living in places like Harbracha into Christians, those same Christian volunteers who might help, you know, Harbracha with harvesting or whatever, uh, can then go to other parts of the country where the Jewish identity is weaker and uh, Jews are more vulnerable to spiritual predators and uh, missionize over there. Right, and I think ultimately the, the solution comes from both of those problems that you presented. On the one hand, we, we aren't seeing the support we'd like to see from the rest of the nation. And on the other hand, uh, when we let in these Christian Zionists, we also open an opening for them to, to prey on those same parts of Israeli society that are less connected to our national story. And I think by, by going into the streets, by doing the work of education and building networking and really building an active living connection with these distant brothers of ours across the country and even across the diaspora, uh, by doing that much harder, much less flashy work of, uh, of changing hearts and not just changing realities on the ground, uh, I think we can hit two birds with one stone and rid ourselves of those those problems with the Christians. Uh, and the third error I see is contextualizing the Palestinians as the enemy, which of course leads to a lot of, um, I think racism would be the wrong word, um, but certainly a lot of negative generalizations about Palestinians, uh, a lot of hostility towards Palestinians, which really limits the political moves we can make. I think, you know, for example, the Bennett-Lapid government that we recently had was the result of political figures like Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir missing an opportunity to sit together in a government with Mansour Abbas, right? Like, not only would that have prevented the Bennett-Lapid government, uh, the Bennett-Lapid plutocracy from gaining power, it would have also revolutionized our entire understanding of the relationships we could have with each other here because suddenly we would have had a situation where it's the Jews most deeply connected to our roots, whether it's the national religious parties, whether it's the Haredi parties, the Likud, sitting together in a government with the Islamic party and realizing how much we might actually have in common in terms of values, in terms of culture, in terms of vision for what we'd like to see the country be, um, I think that was definitely a missed opportunity, and it came from almost like a blind animosity. And, and the anima I want to be fair, the animosity is not based on nothing, meaning like we have been locked in a very bloody ethnic conflict for over a century. We've spoken about this many times in the show before. I think both sides, both peoples are experiencing this conflict very differently. But we have to acknowledge when it shackles us when our attitudes towards Palestinians or our understanding of the conflict or the way we experience the conflict actually serves as a barrier to us being able to advance. Right, I think one of the strengths of a vision and one of the reasons we call ourselves the vision movement is that we're really trying to not erase history and not forget history, 
but at the same time not get stuck in our history not let the past prevent us from thinking and imagining a better future i would say that the main difference here is that while most of the jewish people today including the zionists relate to themselves relate to the jews as an object with a problem we are relating to ourselves we are relating to the people of israel as a subject with desires and that's what's important to us the the goal the desires and whatever the problem is is a short-term obstacle to overcome it could be that these people hate us and those people hate us and these people want to wipe us out and and all of that might be true and all of that needs to be addressed and all those people who would threaten us need to be neutralized but that's not the story. The story is the people of Israel actually fulfilling our purpose in history. Rudd, and I find that a lot of times the assumption that the other side, the Palestinians, the Israeli left, all of these others that we, we build for ourselves, it, they're not going to go along with it. They're not going to agree. They're not going to play along. So it's not even worth considering X, Y, and Z. And if we had the, the courage to to stand up and say, this is where we want to go. This is what's right for Israel now. We hope you get on board. Uh, but if not, we're not backing down. I think that's really a, an approach that could allow us to to start thinking a lot more creatively about where, where we're really taking uh, Israeli society. Do you think that's how we should have approached judicial reform? I think in general, the, the approach to ju judicial reform was uh, more reactionary. Mm -hmm. than it was uh, based on where Am Yisrael really sees its judicial system heading. I think it was a, a response to the Aaron Barak reforms and the current Supreme Court much more than it was an imaginative and positive step forward. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. And, and definitely, you know, with all the noise we hear from the anti-government protests about how these judicial reforms are actually going to lead to an oppressive authoritarian state and there are certain sectors of society that are going to lose their rights or are going to be marginalized or oppressed. Um, I, I think all of that ignores the fact that right now in the current situation there are sectors of society that feel very deeply oppressed by the power structure or by, by the Supreme Court, which is the most powerful body in the land. I, I think it was just I would even say offensive to those who feel oppressed by our current judicial system to hear that we can't end that oppression and limit the powers of the Supreme Court for fear that some other group is going to be oppressed, in theory. You know, through all the scaremongering that we heard from the media and Yair Lapid and Ehud Barak, etc. But yeah, I, I think you're right that even those who are trying to reform the judicial system were driven more by that feeling of oppression of the judiciary in its current form, the Supreme Court in its current form, as a result of the Aaron Barak revolution. And just going back for a moment to like cooperation with the Christian Zionists, I think, you know, we all have to be careful. I know we at Vision definitely have to be careful of running too far ahead of the camp. Um, but I definitely see people, people out there, friends of mine, people who I'm personally friends with, really falling into the trap of believing we're at a different stage of history than we're at. Like I have people saying to me, um, in defense of their work with Christian Zionists and in opposition to my position on the issue, saying our prophets teach us that we are going to be teaching Torah to the rest of the world. We are going to be teaching Torah to the nations. 
And here come the nations. Here come Gentiles asking us to teach them Torah. What are we? Of course, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. That's how they see it. A lot of the Jews who are engaging with the Christian Zionists really believe that they're in the role of teacher, the Christians are in the role of student, and they are fulfilling a biblical prophecy of sorts. And I, I say to them, I say, well, first of all, the fact that money is part of the dynamic is a problem, right? The fact that these Christian Zionists are supporting the Jews who see ourselves in the role of teacher is a problem. Number two, we're not there yet. Meaning, we don't have what to teach the world. Not yet. I mean, we will. But right now, what we've done so far is we've united the force of Torah with the force of nationalism. But we have not yet done the important work, which we at Vision are definitely the forefront of doing, the important work of incorporating universalism in its full expression into that, right? We are not ready to teach the world until we are what Rav Kook calls Kodesh Kodeshim right? Where we are the full expression of Torah, the full expression of Jewish national consciousness, and the full expression of universalism. That's not being somebody with Torah and Jewish nationalism quoting some universalist verses from Yeshayahu. That's not the full expression of universalism. The full expression of universalism needs to be at the same volume as our national consciousness and our Torah. And until we get to that point, we're not ready to teach the rest of the world. Those Christian Zionists are low-hanging fruit because, quite frankly, from my perspective, it's just a missionary tactic to pretend they want to learn Torah from the Jews, to get us to see ourselves in the role of teacher, take their money, give them legitimacy, give them a foothold in our country, give them credibility in Israeli society. And I think that we can't be so naive as to believe that missionary work simply consists of a bunch of Christians, you know, initiating a conversation about Jesus while handing us a pamphlet. Like, that is not what missionary work boils down to. These people are sophisticated. They know what they're doing. They understand psychology. They pump millions, if not billions, of dollars into this. They're in it to win it. They're here to teach the Jews about their man-god, and we need to be vigilant no matter how friendly they are, no matter how much money they try to throw at us. And I think when when teaching is just sprouting off a, <laughs> quotes from our prophets, uh, of course they're going to listen. They, for 2,000 years, have been quoting the same prophets. Or misquoting. Um, but if we were to, to actually try to teach them, we need to teach them, first and foremost, what our sages, what Rabbi Yudah Levi, what the Rambam, what the Maral have to say about Christianity itself, about the Edom Empire. And once we're ready to have that conversation about what Christianity has done and created in the world and how that's different from the Hebrew mission and our universalist vision, without the readiness to discuss those issues, then we're not teaching them anything. Right. So there are no shortcuts. I think that's that's really the takeaway here. There are no shortcuts when it comes to advancing Jewish liberation. And that's why these tools, these post-colonial tools are so important. And a lot of the other tools that we try to utilize in the course of our work, it's so crucial to be able to really look at where we are in the historical map, where we are, what stage of our liberation process we're at, what are the challenges of that stage, what the stage requires of us, what we as a people are meant to incorporate into ourselves in order to grow to the next stage, what does this mean for humanity? Really, we, we, it's not just, you know, 
it's not as simple as just looking at the Amidah and saying, okay, we've done this, but we haven't done that yet. Okay, let's do, you know, we, we've, we've achieved these aspirations, but not the aspirations here, here, and here. It's true. I, I would say the Amidah is very much, the Shemona Esrei is very much the map of our liberation process. I think that's actually its intention when it was, you know, when it was like really concretized after the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans, it was really meant to instill in us the will of our collective soul, the aspirations of our collective soul in like a workout that we do three times a day, right? Keep telling ourselves that we are trying to achieve these goals, but that still requires more sophisticated tools to know when what's appropriate.